This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. What music do you listen to? What's your design process? What's your favorite building? What do you eat for breakfast? All this and more today as Andrew and I answer your burning questions. Today's episode is brought to you with support from The Forge Prize, a program put together by the American Institute of Steel Construction. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, we're letting you, the listener, take over the show. Kinda. I get questions, Andrew gets questions, some are easy, some are hard, some are just... (laughs) I'm not really sure what they are, but today we're going to try to answer a bunch of questions that have been submitted to the show over the last several months. Once we knew that we were going to record in ask the show episode, I turned to Instagram and asked people to send in their questions. And if we chose their question, we'd give them a little shout out on the recording. And a prize. Oh, wait, no, not. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a prize, actually. Here it comes. You ready? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to give them a little shout out. But it's almost guaranteed that I will mispronounce some of these handles. But everyone should feel confident that a deposit to Bob's Bank of Awesomeness will be made correctly. Nice. All right. That's a covetable prize. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. I don't think I've got any deposits in there, so I'm not sure. you got deposits. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on what your balance may be, but... <laughs> okay, Andrew. So how do you feel about answering these questions? Are you excited? Yeah. Some of them are going to be interesting. Some of them are a little bit difficult, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Well, I should point out that Andrew and I have not discussed these questions at all with one another prior to recording today's episode. It seems like it'll be more fun if we surprise each other with our responses. We know the questions and we know which ones are going to be asked, but we haven't discussed our answers with one another. That's right. Prepare to be surprised. So let's just launch into the first question. Are you ready? All right. I kind of did want to make this the first one, but we kind of are taking these in order, you know, of the ones that made the cut. So this came in from B underscore Lauren, and their question is, early architecture careers, making the transition from intern to licensed architect. And my response to that was, is there a transition between intern to licensed architect? I'm not so sure that there is. I don't know that there's a huge difference. I mean, other than the title of your name, maybe, but the joy of passing the exams. Which is offline from your office. I mean, they might maybe they give you a cake. We actually do that in my current office. They have like a day, like if you pass the test, they're going to have a cake, which may not sound like a big deal, but when you have like 100 people in the office, that's a big cake. That's cake every day. That's cake, <laughs> cake for winners. For me, when I was looking at this, I mean, A, trying to figure out what the question was exactly, but that I don't know that there is a huge difference in what you're doing, your work in a day-to-day atmosphere of this is what I do today, and then I pass the exam. Well, guess what? I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow. It's just now I can get sued for it. <laughs> yeah, there you go, B underscore Lauren. That's the Maybe. transition. Getting sued. Now you're liable. I think it's an important thing to do. You want to make that transition, but I'm not sure that you're Overall duties and job scopes change all that much. No, they don't. And I would say that the people who are responsible for you, ultimately, unless you work in a vacuum by yourself, that 
if you're not prepared to do certain things, I don't care if you're licensed or not. I'm not going to let you do them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Your arc of responsibilities, maybe arc's not the right way to put it, but the responsibilities you're given, they're going to continue to grow. And there's certain kind of milestones and things that you're going to be asked to do. It's not like you jump from one silo of responsibility as an intern. And then the next day when you pass the test and get licensed, you jump to a new silo. Your responsibilities should continue on the same, hopefully, upward trajectory that they've been on the day before you got licensed. Yeah, right. You're still driving up the same hill. It just, you got to, maybe, maybe you got a little bit different car, but that's about it. (laughs) Literally a different car. That's not true either. I didn't get a raise when I got licensed. I'm trying to think about, I don't know that I did either. At my last office, the one that I left just, you know, like two months ago, we did give a little something to folks when they passed their test, but it it wasn't life-changing. You couldn't go, all right, well, I'm going to fly to Tahiti now and reward myself for this accomplishment. Okay, so there you go, B. Lauren. Hopefully we answered your question. Up next is, I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to get this right. I think it's Fatima KZM. And the question is whether or not to do pro bono projects, you know, especially early on in your career. So I guess they're asking, should you or shouldn't you do pro bono projects? And as soon as I read that, I was like, of course, you should always take on some sort of pro bono work in your life. It's good for other people. It's good for the community. And quite honestly, it will make you feel like a good person. So, yeah, I agree. But I think there's a difference in pro bono work and free work. To me, pro bono has some implication of it's a charitable thing you're doing. It's kind of a nonprofit deal. It's not like, hey, can you do this for me and I'm not going to pay you. That's right. That's not pro bono. I'll say this. We had a project. This was like two jobs ago. And we had a guy who said, this is what I want. I want you to design this house for me. Here's how big I want it. Here's all the stuff I want to go in it. Here's the amount of money that I want to spend to do that. We said, great. So we did it, got it priced, came in right on the money. But this person came to us and said, eh, you know what? I'd actually like it to cost about 20% less. And we were like, okay, we get it. You know, maybe something changed. Maybe he didn't get the bonus that he thought he was going to get. You know, that's fine. Whatever. We're like, okay, so what do you want to get rid of? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to get rid of anything. I just want it to cost less. <laughs> we're like, it doesn't really work like that. And he goes, well, can you cut your fee? And the partner at the time, she goes, I always thought this is great. She's like, so you want us to subsidize your dream house? <laughs> that is a good answer. And he kind of was like, yeah. And she was like, no, we're not doing that. This was the same project that we had it bid out a couple of times and it kind of kept coming in at the same amount. And this guy was just saying, well, let's just keep asking more and more contractors because eventually someone's going to agree to do it for what I want to pay. And we're like, yeah, because they're going to make a mistake. So we finally gave up after a while and he kept chasing down other contractors to price it out. We gave him a half size set. We got the numbers back from like one of the contractors and it was like $300,000 below his target. And it turns out the guy had scaled off the half size set. And so a lot of his costs were less because everything was half as big. It was half the cost because it wasn't even half the cost. No, it wasn't half the cost. (laughs) Isn't that funny? That's hysterical. Hey, well, I don't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but this bathroom is only four feet by four feet, but okay. Whatever. (laughs) It's going to cost $12,000. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 
that might actually be one of the funniest things in a professional capacity that I've ever been a part of. That's pretty good. But pro bono, yes. Sometimes it's good exposure. And if it's for local folks, it gives you some good local exposure. There you go, Fatima KZM. All the questions that we answer, I'm going to put a link at the, just like I'm going to warehouse a link to all these people's Instagram accounts or wherever it was we got them. So, okay. All right. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. So who knows? Prepare for the onslaught of visitors. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Prepare to get tagged. That's right. All right. Next up, Nicole underscore L Schultz. I hope I said that right. This was kind of a fun question. I thought there's a couple of these that came in. Not everybody took our requests for questions very seriously. This, <laughs> this might yeah. fall into that category a little bit. What music do you and Andrew listen to while designing or drafting? And they actually want us to give updates every few episodes, which may or may not happen. We'll see. But for now, let's just talk about what we're currently listening to. Or do you have music that you like to put on when you're doing a certain activity in the office? It's an easy question for me in a way. It's not specific music, but a specific type of music. When I'm in the office, I don't want to have anything that has words. Yes, I agree with that. Because I get distracted and I'll start singing or whatever. I, I have a tendency if it's on, <laughs> I want to focus on the music. I either play some jazz or I play a lot of movie scores, like epic movies, and I play their musical score soundtrack. So, Like the Equalizer. Uh, yeah, okay. I don't know. I was going to say, like, more I've got, like, the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. I can play that soundtrack for all day. It's like 10 hours of music, and it just plays. It's got ups and downs and slows, and there's tempo changes, and it's enough to keep me sort of moving, but it doesn't really distract my brain to, for me to start singing or listening to the words and stuff. What about classical music? Yeah, that's okay, too. I do that, too. I mean, I kind of switch it around. I mean, as long as it's instrumental, it's definitely all orchestra sort of related music. I should put a caveat to your answer. And that is, I know this for a fact. You drive a lot and you listen to different music when you're driving from like your office or wherever you are to a job site. Cause you might be in the car for six hours in a day. Oh yeah. I'll listen to different stuff then or podcasts. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you, Andrew seems to know the words to every song that like will be someplace and some song will come on like, Big Pimpin' by Jay-Z. And he knows all the words. Like, I can do, like, a couple of the words, like, every now and then. But, I mean, Andrew can break it down for you. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that I can remember stuff like that, but I might not be able to remember what I had for lunch yesterday. But I can remember lyrics from 15 years ago. Yeah, and those are, there's a lot of words, and they come at you pretty fast in that particular song. Because... And the reason I listed that specific example was when Andrew and I were up in D.C., <laughs> we just happened to do a drop-in trivia night at some random bar that was across the street from the hotel. Took second place for what it's worth. Did our, yeah. We did pretty good. They had a music section, and that kind of just started putting songs on my mind. That was it, wasn't it? Isn't that where we got it? Yeah, I think so. I can't remember. <laughs> but we can remember the words to Big Pimpin'. Yeah, I can remember it all. I don't remember that. Okay, so I was going to start off by saying that music is important to me, but that seems like something everyone would say, so I don't think it has any real value, even though I did just say it. <laughs> that sounds fair. That sounds fair, right? I can listen to music that has words in it, because the truth is, is when I put it on, eventually, I don't even hear that. I, I hear nothing, but I cannot listen to 
spoken word. I can't listen to podcasts. I can't listen to news stories. Yeah. Because then I'm either listening to what they're saying. I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing to where, like I said, it can be any kind of music. Well, I should also say this. I I seem like I'm a little all over the place. No. (laughs) I know. Shocking, right? Yeah. All right. It doesn't sound like that at all. No. Okay. And this is in direct contrast to you, Andrew Hawkins. Mm -hmm. I don't know the words to any songs. Not (laughs) one single song. I'm not even sure I could get happy birthday to you correct, quite honestly. That's funny. I've never been able to do it. Literally, not a single song. I don't know the words. Not quite surprising. After our episodes in D.C. where we had this and you were not sure the words of Big Pimpin' either. <laughs> yeah, I know like, you know, maybe 8% of the words. I'll say them with enthusiasm, but then the rest of it, That's I just kind of mumble mouth it. Okay, so according to my listening history, we're here's the answers. Here are my current four most favorite bands that I'm listening to. First up, Silver Sun Pickups. I love them. I love all their albums. Going to go see them in concert in about a month. I'm actually going to get on a plane, fly across the country, go see them in concert. That's awesome. Queens of the Stone Age. Okay. And here's a couple albums. How to Handle a Rope, Songs for the Deaf, Rated R, and Villains. Those are four albums. Check them out. They're all good. They're listed in the category of stoner rock, which I don't know what that says about me. Well. It's like mellow driving rock. (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. Stoner rock might be right. In that same vein, All Them Witches is another group that I've been listening to. So there's a song called Heavy Like a Witch. That was the song that actually caught my attention. You know, I have a listening app. It's Napster now. It used to be Rhapsody. And I tend to... <laughs> I know. Napster. It's still around. Date yourself again. Napster. I, I was Rhapsody and then Napster bought them. I can't help it. Yeah, but Napster like went out of business a billion years ago. I know, but somehow like the mighty Phoenix, they've risen from the ashes and they bought Rhapsody was actually one of the very first streaming music apps that existed. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, this is bleeding edge stuff when they came out. In 1994. Whatever. I was out. I was out (laughs) front. I know. I pay like $8 a month for it and there's like not a song on there that I want that I can't find. So I, All right. I love it. So shout out to them. But they have like a related artist kind of section. And I go down rabbit holes all the time. Yeah. And then the last group I'll listen is called Pacifier. P-A-S-S-A-F-I-R-E. Which is a reggae band out of Georgia, I think. Although the lead singer, his name is Ted Brown, moved last year to Maryland. Because that's the hotbed of all reggae music, I think. Is yeah, Maryland. I'm sure. <laughs> Maryland. Anyway, if you're going to check them out, Submersible is a good starter album, and then Long Shot's another one. Uh, so there you go. Okay. There's my right. really long answer to music. Yeah, that was really long. You had to see that coming. Yeah, I know. The next question comes from Benham underscore design, and their question is, it's not even really of a question. It's just kind of a statement, really. It says, design talk, your process of design. How deep do you go into the details, your philosophy stuff? I'm not sure that I'm aware enough of my own personal design philosophy to be able to articulate it very succinctly. In direct contrast to the succinct answer I provided on the music question. (laughs) The music? Sure. Uh But I will say that the nature of how my career and knowledge base has evolved, that I think about how something gets built all the time. I think how something gets built should be reflected in how it is designed. 
and I think I'm incapable of designing now without thinking of all the parts and how they come together. And I will confess that at times, I think that this is a little limiting to my own creative process. So like when I do desk critiques now, how something gets built always becomes part of the conversation. But it also suggests that I have a certain level of mastery and understanding to how everything is built, which clearly I don't. So that's, that's <laughs> kind of a rate limiting step to a certain point. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way I can agree with that. If you had asked me this maybe two or three years ago, it would have been more difficult. But as I do more teaching, I have to be able to talk about this stuff in the way that I think about architecture a little bit more succinctly sure, sure. to explain it to other people. So my thoughts on this get to be, are becoming more clear, even though I still say it's difficult. But like you, I like to put things together. They ask about how deep into the details do you get? And I get as deep as humanly possible. I dig in there as deep as I can, and that's often where I start, the kind of this idea of going from the smallest out to the biggest in a way. Can I add a caveat to this? And you can either jump on board with this or not. But when I think of the details or what we're talking about now, I'm not talking about vapor barrier. What I'm talking about is like the componentized <laughs> elements of something. Yeah, I'm with you. That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about screw patterns and that kind of stuff, but the design of certain detailed elements of yes. the project. The other thing I would say about that is to me, I think it's something that maybe some people think is unique in the design world is that I design in section first. Everything I do, I start in section. I don't start drawing floor plans first. I always start drawing sections first and designing projects in section before I do anything else. You know who I think also kind of does that? I think Glenn Merkett designs like that, which I know you're a fan. Yeah. That kind of speaks to, and this is part of your tagline, it suggests like how light enters a building is paramount to your process, it seems like. Because I know there's mm -hmm. some people, you and I both have a mutual friend to where he would say, plan is king. Everything starts from the plan. You apply the rigor to your plan, the elevation takes care of itself. And I don't subscribe to that. Yeah, I don't either. But I know a lot of architects that do. Some very successful architects, but for me, it doesn't work that way. Everything I do derives from a section and that will at some point create your plan and your elevations. I mean, your elevations are almost part of the section of right. thinking. I get, sometimes I get, <laughs> sometimes I get, maybe not in trouble, but one day I might get in trouble because I tell my students that a floor plan or building plans are kind of like a puzzle and that monkeys can put together puzzles. Nice. <laughs> so that you should do something better than that. So that's why we design in section, because that's not something that anyone can be do. Be better than a monkey. Yeah, be better than a monkey. Because the other thing I feel like is that almost anybody, anybody understands plan for the most part. Think about your clients. No client ever has a problem coming to me with a plan that they've figured out, drawn on graph paper. Everybody comes to, comes to understand a plan and they can bring you a plan, but they have no idea about how that starts to turn three-dimensionally. And to me, that's what separates us as architects from everybody okay. else. I think that's a good answer. Did you have a certain moment in your career trajectory? Like, did you start doing that? Because that is a little atypical. Was that a school thing? Was that something that just kind of evolved during professional practice? When did that start to be part of your process? I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think it's always been part of my process. Because, I mean, even in my projects that I did during school, they were always really very section heavy. I mean, I would be drawing sections of things before I would do anything else. I think sometimes that's how I sketch best in kind of that regard. And I start to imagine space that way, as opposed to being able to do like 
three-point perspectives and things like that. It was easier for me to draw these two-dimensional line drawings of space, and that's sort sure. of where it that came from. Sense. I can actually point back to the time when I sketch the way I do, and I design the way I do, and I think about design the way that I do. Really started happening when I was around 28, 29 years old. Mm, okay. I'd like to think that I was always a pretty good designer. At least I got A's in school, so that counts for something. And my first job out of school, I was doing interior projects, retail spaces, and it was very materially rich environments. I didn't have to worry about how things really... I mean, I was a magician with studs and drywall and millwork. (laughs) I could do all that stuff. And it wasn't until I had to start drawing like real buildings, which wasn't something I did until I was at the end of my 20s based on the nature of the work that I'd done preceding that, to where I was Mm -hmm. so panicked at not understanding how things got together that as I started doing more and more drawing in AutoCAD, when I would do a wall, I wouldn't just go, oh, well, this wall is four and seven eighths inches. I would actually take my line and I would offset five eighths of an inch for the sheetrock. And then I do my stud and then I do another line for my, my sheetrock again. And so when I drew a wall, it wasn't just inner face and outer face. It was all the pieces in between because I was so paranoid that I would not understand how all these things came together, that I would be embarrassed and I would look like I didn't know what I was doing. And so all of a sudden this switch flipped in my head to where I didn't make a move without articulating all the pieces at once when I was putting things together. And these weren't details. These were plans. These are just regular old plans. Yeah. That's when it happened. I mean, I can look at it and go, I am who I am today because I did interior projects for the first five years of my career and felt like I didn't know how to be a proper architect and keep water out of a building. All right. There's my philosophy. All right. Stay tuned for more Life of an Architect. Andrew, I'm super excited about what we have going on with today's sponsor. Yeah, me too. This is pretty cool. And there's actually a chance for someone to walk away with some serious cash. Totally. So Andrew and I are referring to the Forge Prize, a prize that gives emerging architects a chance to change the world and win $20,000. The Forge Prize, a program put together by the American Institute of Steel Construction, or AISC, is challenging emerging professionals to develop imaginative solutions that bolster structural steel as the 21st century building material of choice through a two-stage design challenge. If you're selected as one of the finalists, you'll get to present your entry in person to a jury and a live audience at the next national AIA convention, A20 as they like to call it, which is in Los Angeles and one of those three finalists will leave with the top prize. That's actually pretty awesome. The Forge Prize recognizes innovation in the use of structural steel and how it can be used to reduce design and construction time. The Forge Prize, established by the American Institute of Steel Construction, invites emerging architects to submit proposals for visionary designs that embrace steel as the primary structural component to increase project speed. Whether you're solving a logistical constraint or social issue through your proposed vision, everyone needs to channel their inner Mies van der Rohe and Philip Johnson by leveraging the inherent characteristics of designing with structural steel. The Forge Prize provides a great platform for conceptual design in which designers are not limited in scope or complexity. There's no limits. Yeah. This is a two-stage award program. 
three concepts will be selected and awarded a $10,000 stipend to continue on to stage two. The grand prize winner of the Forge Prize will receive an additional $10,000 for a grand total of $20,000. That means the finalists will win ten grand each, and that's like the perfect amount of money to do some serious architectural traveling. You can take some time to travel the world and feed your architectural soul, maybe even go visit some structurally significant steel buildings. And if you win, give me a call. I'd like to go with you. <laughs> Entrance for the 2020 Forge Prize must meet the following criteria. You must be emerging architects currently pursuing licensure or licensed 10 years or less in the year 2020. You must be working professionals in any of the following firm types. An architecture firm, an A&E firm, but submitting as an emerging architect, or a design-build firm, but submitting as an emerging architect. And here's the deal. All entries must be submitted by January 15th, 2020. To enter, go to forgeprize.com for all information about the prize, rules, and regulations, and to get started on your entry. There is no entry fee, so there's nothing holding you back from a chance to win some money and travel the world. Okay, next question comes from Akashamar3. Again, <laughs> let's hope I got that right. Okay, so here's their question from Akashamar3. How to get better at basic design in architecture? So would you be surprised, Andrew Hawkins, to learn that I get asked some variation of this question literally every day on my website? <laughs> no, well, I'd be interested not. to hear not. what you have to say as an architecture school professor, but I can tell you my undoubtedly poor response. Go for it. Let me hear that. Set the bar low. <laughs> and maybe and I can jump in. You'll I don't be know. able we'll to see. Fosbury flop over this. So first, <laughs> this is what I say. First, you need to have an organizing idea, something that will help shape like your direction and guide you when making design decisions which I know that doesn't whatever nonsense talk, but it's important. This is what we used to call, at least when I was in school, a party diagram. And I actually want to take a minute here because I want to define what a party diagram is because it's lingo and I almost never use lingo and jargon. I try to avoid these sorts of words, but the party diagram really is at the root of how I think you have to answer this question. So a party diagram is, according to Bob, me is a drawing or a diagram used early on in the design process like schematic design to represent your concept think of it as like the classic napkin sketch you know you're struck with an idea and you just need to articulate its essence before that vision leaves you know like when you're at a bar i mean you don't have to be at a bar you could be wherever but it could be a coffee bar. That's it right. It doesn't have to be a, a cocktail bar, napkin. Yes. It could be a coffee now. Yeah, you just yes. you, you have this idea and you're like, just real quick, jot it down. And you're like, it's the big idea, really. And when you make a design decision, you need to ask yourself, does this support my big idea or is it just decoration? And I think we can acknowledge that few of us are Adolf Loos and we like a little bit of ornament and decoration in our designs. So we're still talking about basic designs here. You got to get your party diagram. What's your kind of big idea? Because that will help you answer all questions moving forward. But then once you get that idea done, and this was something that I struggled with in school in the beginning, I'd have like 
these awesome party diagrams, and then I would kind of fail in the execution of the idea. But after getting your guiding idea in place, I like to advocate the creation of form, scale, massing, and proportion, which I know that's kind of the big four. But like when I answer this question to people who email me, the answer to this question falls apart because now I've put myself in a position where I have to describe how to get better at form, scale, massing, and proportion. And guess what? That's ar- that's architecture <laughs> yeah. school. Yeah. Right? I mean, but but essentially, that's the gist of it. You got to come up with a big idea. You got to figure out what the essence is. And every design decision you make, you need to say, does this contribute? Is this the focus? Does this address what my big idea is? And if it's not, don't do it. If it is, move forward. And then as your building turns from an idea into something that's real, then it's all about shape making. It's form, it's scale, it's proportion, it's ratios, it's all that kind of stuff. Because how tall you make it, how big you make it, it needs to speak to one another, but it still comes back to the big idea. Anyway, that's my answer. I'm not sure that it's a good one, but it's the only one I got. Okay. I mean, I agree with that to a certain extent. I don't think you're off the mark. I would say to me, the idea of having a concept and making sure that that concept is reinforced by the decisions that you make is an important one. I have this phrase that I use in my studios and even in my practice at times. Be better than a monkey. Yeah, right. That too. But design, decide, and execute. And you have to continually do those three things over and over and over because each decision builds on the next one. But you have to make a decision. You can't sit and go in circles with one thing trying to solve all the problems. You have to pick one thing and say, this is what it's going to be. That way you can move on to the next thing and move on to the next thing. But I have, I have things, to interrupt again, because I think that's really interesting. And the reason I think it's interesting yeah. is that's the most linear design process I've ever heard anybody say. Most, I shouldn't say this. But it's not linear. That's not but what I'm saying. it sounds that way. You're like, make a design, do a design, make a decision, then execute it, and then move on to the next thing. And so it's this, it's this rinse and repeat kind of do this, do this, do this, then go on to the next thing. This is for my students more than okay. anything else. Because I feel like students have a, most of the time, there's this huge issue of trusting in yourself to do something and that you're doing the right thing. And in order to get through that, to make it to the next decision, you've got to decide and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do for now. It doesn't mean you can't come back and revisit that decision later, but you can't sit there and try to make 20 decisions at once. You have to make one so that something can fall into place and you can make the next one and the next one and the next one so that you can make forward progress. And I'm not saying that, again, that you can't come back and revisit ones in, in the future, but you have to start saying yes at some point. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But for me, really, the first answer that I would say for that question about how to get better at basic design is practice, repetition. I think that that's the the harder part is really being able to design things, design things, design things, design things. Like pick a problem, design it 50 times. That's a really good answer, actually. And it's more about the process that you're trying to learn about how to design and which way it works best for you. I mean, it's generative. You got to do it over and over and over and over and over. My younger students in studios in the early part of their education, it's less about the solutions that they get to, but more about the fact, how many can I generate? How many different ideas can I come up with? Because I've got to do that. I've got to have this process of designing and doing it and doing it and doing it. Because that's really where you get better at 
basic design is just doing it. I mean, it's kind of like anything else. It just practice, practice, I agree practice. with everything you just said. Well said. So here's the next question. This comes courtesy of wall.quinn. What's your favorite building and why? Do you want to go first? Uh, you can go first. Okay, I'll go first. All right. I hate this question. I don't hate <laughs> wall. I don't hate wall.quinn for asking it because it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. I agree. But I don't like answering it. I hate answering it. It's almost impossible. It is almost impossible. And, and I go, as an architect, I should be able to answer it. Like, surely there's some building that speaks to me in like a consistent and ongoing nature, right? Wrong. Mm-hmm. As Andrew Bennett would say, wrong. <laughs> a, I think there should be a requirement that you've actually been to your favorite building. Oh, I agree. I mean, I was only thinking of buildings that I've been to. Yeah, you have to. And B, that it had some sort of impact on you. Because if it didn't, why would it be your favorite building? True. Both counts. True. So in that regard, if I try to put some restrictors on this and kind of boil it down, I have to say it's La Tourette. That has to be my favorite. Yeah, I think I remember that from our bucket list show. Yeah, I think that probably was, which is unusual because normally I have a different answer every time I answer that particular question. But maybe I'm just getting to the point where I go, these are the things that you have to have in place in order to answer a question like this. And for me, it's got to be La Tourette. Okay. I'm going to go with the... The Pyramid. No, the original De Manil by Renzo Piano. Oh, that's a nice choice. That's a good building. Mainly because that building was sort of seminal in my educational path. I first went to that building when I was a sophomore, and it really opened my eyes to what you could do with architecture and how to carefully, thoughtfully do things. That's my one for today. Yeah, that's a good answer, because I actually think that building was significant for me as well, because it was the first time, despite the fact that we have Lou Kahn's building in Fort Worth. Which is another very good building. The Kimball was the first building I went to where like light had this certain effect, but the Demonil with the way the, the ceiling had the scallop reflectors in it, it was mm-hmm. the first time somebody had really kind of like in my face pointed out the amount of effort they went into to think about how light enters a building. Exactly. Again, which is ironic because the Kimball's 30-minute drive from me, so. Okay, next question. This is from at 41.nz and kind of from at JPNA88. All right, so their question, metric or imperial? Dot, dot, dot. Be honest. First off, 41.nz, I'm always honest. (laughs) But this is an easy one, I think, for us to answer. But as I said before, Andrew and I have not talked about our answers to these questions, right? Yes. Okay. So on the count of three, as in one, two, three, your answer. Okay. Let's say our answer together at the same time. All right. Okay. One, wait, two. Wait, wait, wait. What, what are we saying? <laughs> You're going to yes, say whether we say, metric. Are saying yes or no, or are we saying no, it, metric it says or imperial? metric or imperial. Okay. Right? Yes. So here, here we go. One, two, three, imperial. Imperial. <laughs> of course. But yeah, that's where we ha- live. That's how it, it is. It has to be. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. look, I love the metric system, whatever. Do I think not, imperial is stupid? Yes. But yeah, it's what I'm used problem. to. Yeah, it's what we do. Yeah, So Exactly. So there you go. There's our, that's our honest answer. All right. Next up is at Trev Thomas. Their question is looking back on school. I know it's been a while, which, hey, Trev Thomas, (laughs) we don't need that kind of attitude. I know. We don't need that 
kind of yeah, talk from you. Throwing shade at us. I know. So looking back on school, what would you do differently? So we're going to answer this question anyway. Yeah, even depend- though it was somewhat insulting. Yeah. That's right. Trev Thomas is big jerk. <laughs> so depending on how I answer this question, the answer is either long or short. And considering we've been at this for a while, I might go with the short answer. So I'm also going to assume that since we are looking back, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? This isn't a time travel question. Yeah, sure. With the benefit of hindsight, the easy answer is that I would tell myself to pay more attention to my history and theory classes, probably take some business type classes, and probably burn a few more electives that would develop my drawing skills. Actually, you know, I should probably just focus on that last one. (laughs) (laughs) I would have myself take more classes over in the fine arts building to work on my, like on my drawing, my sketching skills. sketching abilities. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all good answers. I would agree with all of them. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate that. Mine is much more general and it would be work harder (laughs) because- I almost put that down. I kind of feel like I didn't really apply myself as much as I could have. Not that I was lazy- but that I was probably capable of more, or that I know that I was. And even though I got good grades, did well, I think I could have done more, and I probably would have gotten more out of it. I was going to say work harder in the beginning. I figured yeah. it out halfway through, but first couple well, of years. Well, but I, f- I figured out how to get by. I knew what I needed to do to make an A, and I did it. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't, that may have not been pushing myself to my fullest capabilities. It was just, Doing what I needed to do to get an A. Yeah, and that's high school mentality versus college mentality. Okay, there you go, Trev Thomas. Yeah, even though mm, maybe we should cut that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next question. I, Glorious, sends the following question. Favorite contemporary architect that's not a Starkitect? So, obviously, the emphasis here has to be on the not a Starkitect portion of that question, right? Yes, I suppose. That's the most concerning part of that question that lacks definition. Yeah, because it's pretty loose, but it's also what makes it kind of interesting. So I agree. I kind of think that we could turn this into a full-blown podcast episode. I actually think we could, too. I think it would be pretty easy. Well, starting first and foremost with trying to define what constitutes a Starkitect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So favorite contemporary architect that is not a Starkitect. That's the question. And that suggests to me that the pool I should be drawing from are regular practitioners, whatever that means, not the usual cast of people, you know. And can I add that now that I've made the transition to an architectural firm that focuses on commercial work, that my list of architects would be wildly different than just about everybody in my new office. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You mentioned architects at times that you are very familiar with that do high-end residential work, and I'm like, what, who, what? Yeah, they have, nobody has any idea. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. Well, like, that's, oh, man, and I'm like, nah, I don't know. I have to go look them up later. Well, that's part of what makes this question somewhat interesting because you have, like, the Frank Garys and the Zaha Hadids and the Norman Fosters, and everyone knows them, right? So we go, those are clearly Starkitects. Bjark Ingels, clearly the yeah, star, Starkitects. Sure. At what level, like, there's practitioners out there that, They win awards like crazy all the time. You pull up any issue of Architect Magazine. They're in it at least once or twice a year. Are they Starkitects? Yeah, but if you say their name, nobody knows who they are. Yeah, like can a firm be a Starkitect? Yeah, exactly, right. 
right? I mean, Zaha Hadid's not with us anymore, but her name is still used synonymously as a Starkitect. And the work that that firm does. Yeah, that's right. So most of my Starkitects, the ones that I put on my list, come from the residential side of the industry, at least until I become more familiar with the work of different commercial firms. But but you mean non non architects This is my non architect list. Yeah, I got you. And I thought this was interesting. Again, maybe someone would say, that's totally a architect They're going to call me out on it, but I don't <laughs> think they will. Maybe. So the first one I had, and I have, just real quick, I put Pitsu Kadim in there. He's an architect in Tel Aviv. I'm sure I didn't say his name correctly. I kind of stumbled on his Instagram feed. And I was blown away by how amazing it is. Crazy great stuff. Yeah, see, I have no idea who that is. So I would say not a architect. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough, right? But then I started thinking, well, maybe I should look at the people that influence me day to day. I mean, these are people that I know that I look at and I go, they do great work. It's very refined. It's highly detailed. It's clever. I admire it. I admire what they do. Mm-hmm. So those people, you know these people, like Stuart Sampley. Oh, architect yeah. in Austin. Tim Cuppet, architect. Mm-hmm. Alter Studio, Kevin mm-hmm. Alter. Kevin Those Alter, are all, yeah. They're all in Austin. They all do staggeringly beautifully detailed work. You know, the kind of work that I'd love to have my name associated to what they do. Mm-hmm. But it's, they're in my backyard. Yeah. They've won awards in Texas, but maybe not at a national scale. Maybe some of them have, but I mean, again, definitely they're not all the time and they've got 15 books published about their work. Yeah, and see, that's the thing that's kind of, every one of them easily should have, I mean, they have a body of work that warrants having a book published about them, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I'll go, okay, so what about our mutual friend out in LA, Anthony Laney? They do great oh. work, too. Yeah. I think he has a firm that's worth admiration and paying attention to what they're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know him. He and I have chatted a few times. We trade emails, but when I look at it and I go, all right. Favorite contemporary architect. I don't know if that's the answer that they're looking for, but these are people that have an impact on me. And if someone says, hey, point me towards fill in the blank, these are the types of people that come to my mind. And then, of course, I can't leave my new friend Omar Gandhi at OG (laughs) Architects. Of course not. Of course not. That list could keep going for another hour, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And maybe that's something that we do as we look at trying to turn this into an episode about levels of notoriety and who to admire, how we admire them kind of thing. Yeah. And why do we admire them? Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of those people that you listed, right? Yeah, they do. They do work in our backyard and I think they do excellent work. I agree with you. Some of the folks that I sort of went through, you know, I go to the the design conference every year for Texas Society of Architects. And that tends to be a middle ground of people. I mean, sometimes they have really well-known people that come and speak, but sometimes to me, those are more some of those are more lesser known, but still they do really great work. And a lot of the people that I that I put on my list are from from those things. Like I mean, our friend Marlon Blackwell, right? Sure. Yeah. I think he does great work, but I don't know if he's a star architect. I mean, I think he's well known in certain circles, but I don't know that I would say if you went anywhere or that every, anyone listening to this show knows who he is. I bet they would. Marlon's right. got a he's got a pretty big national footprint, I think. Also, like Rand Elliott. Yeah, from Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. Yeah, yeah. David Salmella out of Minnesota. You've actually these are big names, and you've actually met a lot of these guys. Yeah, all of these people. <laughs> I mean, in some form or another. There's a, there's two younger guys that are out in Arizona in Tucson. They run this 
design build studio called Dust. Yeah, I know them. Cade Hayes and Jesus Robles. I think they do some really great work, and they appeal to me from the we're going to build it side as well. So I guess my names maybe aren't so quiet. I mean, I granted, I agree with the folks that you're talking about that are local as well, but maybe mine are a little bit more towards Starkitect. But if we were to say what constitutes Starkitect, I think they'd have to have like global recognition. Yeah, I would say. Maybe so. Maybe that's right. And I'm not sure that, I mean, Marlon's a friend. And yeah. as great as I think he, his work is, I don't know if they know who he is in Tel Aviv, just like the people here might not know who Pitsukadim is. I bet if you go over to that part of the world, everybody knows who he is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's a hard question. So yeah. that's our stab at it. It's a really good question, I think, from the standpoint of defining what that really means. Next question comes from at ec.xv. What do you eat for breakfast? And at the office during a typical work week. Okay, I thought this was a hilarious question. (laughs) It's completely random, but since we're regular people, I thought we should answer it just to make sure that everybody knows that I'm just like them, you know. So every morning, I have my butler prepare a sautéed spinach omelet (laughs) using 1.7 egg whites and fresh-squeezed orange juice without ice, but served precisely at 57 degrees. There you go. I'm just like everybody else. Yeah, it's just, it's just so easy to be a normal guy. Yeah, I'm a normal guy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the true answer is I eat like garbage. And at my age, <laughs> I should know better. We shouldn't be. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I yeah, we should know better. So my current routine is, and this is when I'm making an effort, which I'd say today kind of qualifies. I kind of have a bowl of cereal in the morning, which today was honey bunches of oats. It's not bad. Kind of got soggy a little fast for my liking. Mm. Not like not like that Fruit Loops, man. That'll stand up to some milk. You know? Well, yeah, it's got that varnish on it that keeps it the sugar varnish. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's so good. And I've started making an iced cold brew coffee for the drive-in, which is gotcha. a little unusual. But really, it's like a cup of iced brew coffee and a cup of milk, and that's it. It's kind of It's not very harsh, so I'm not even sure it really qualifies as coffee. But if I could eat what I wanted, which I still do from time to time, is there's a Taco Cabana like (laughs) three blocks from my office. (laughs) Yeah. I'll go get some breakfast tacos because, A, tacos. I like tacos. Yeah. And I like their salsa. Pretty straightforward. All right. I got you. I would say a few years ago, there was a little Mexican food place literally on the drive from on the one and a half mile drive from my house to my office that I would pull in on a fairly regular basis to get breakfast tacos on my way to work. Luckily, they moved, which was better for my health. But nowadays, I'm, I'm horrible. I will have a cold coffee, a Starbucks double shot espresso, and that's my breakfast. I don't eat in the mornings. That's not good. And you shouldn't be going to Starbucks. Oh, I don't go to Starbucks. I buy them at home. They're a little can. Oh, that's, it's like almost, a little, that's almost worse. It's like a little six ounce can of caffeine and chocolate. And that's about it. Mmm, chocolate. So that is what I do. I'm not a big breakfast eater. I mean, I don't know. It, you know, I, waking up in the morning is not really my thing. <laughs> waking, up <laughs> in the, waking up in the afternoon is your thing. It is my thing. That's totally my thing. But so. When I get up in the morning, I, I don't feel like eating. 
like, I don't want to eat food till probably 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And so when I get up and I have to go, I just don't eat. I, it's not something I want to do. I've never been a huge breakfast eater. But oh if God. I want to eat breakfast, I like eggs and sausage and bacon. And, you know, I like the full, big, kind of heavy breakfast. And if I did that every morning, I'd go into a food coma at 9 o'clock every day. You wouldn't be long for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. So I love breakfast foods. Quite honestly, if you want to be my friend, you say, hey, let's go out and get some eggs and pancakes and waffles and whatnot. I'm in. Let's do it. Oh, yeah, I would too. But I like to eat that at, at night sometimes. Like sometimes I'll make eggs for dinner. It's just in the morning eating is not, not for me. Well, the other half of the question, which we've ignored so far, was what do we eat at the office? We should have wildly different answers. And if I'd answered this question like three months ago, the answer would have been different because at my last office, the only food that was up at the office was whatever you brought. Yeah. So I would tend to bring like apples, which I have to peel my apples. I don't want to eat apple skin. <laughs> All yeah. right. Apple skin's terrible. It's covered in wax. It's disgusting. Okay. But at my new office, it's like we have... It's like we have a 7-Eleven in our break room. <laughs> it's a vending machine that's like open. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, so we have a refrigerator that's got every kind of drink you can imagine that's in there. And to the left of that, there's just basket upon baskets of chips and granola bars and this and that. And it just goes on for days. Snacks on snacks on snacks. It's so many snacks. We have like tubs of cereal well, they're not tubs but they're like the bowls of cereal that you just pull the lid off and you pour the milk straight in there. oh it's crazy everyone's made the comment because i mean i started working there i started snacking like crazy <laughs> <laughs> and they have vendors every friday this dude from the sliding company super nice guy by the way drops off like a metric ton of chick-fil-a oh and yeah there's food in there constantly from people dropping i just happened to walk in there this afternoon wanted a glass of water so i walk into the break room slash 7-eleven and there's a giant plate of biscuits on the <laughs> counter <laughs> that's funny i mean not not there was nothing else it was just biscuits yeah that's i go why do we have biscuits like who... yeah, what's that all about yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so random <laughs> yeah so I eat what i want even though i shouldn't and i don't eat at the office either sometimes i do i'm more of a I'm not a grazer. I'm not a person that eats a lot of small meals. I eat two, maybe three meals a day, and that's it. Okay. Here we go. Hope ECXV, you got the answer to your question. Thanks for asking it. That was a fun one. Yeah, that's a good question. Next question comes from David.Alvarez underscore 10. <sighs> yeah, you didn't want to answer this one? No, I didn't. I was hoping we were going to skip it. <laughs> no, we're not skipping this one. Here you go. Ah. What's the best and worst advice you've received, architectural or life in general? So I'll say this. I don't recall getting any bad advice ever other than let's get shots. <laughs> That's not advice. That's yeah, just no. an offering. Yeah. You should get. Okay. Fair enough. So <laughs> I cannot think of any bad advice that I've ever gotten. Certainly if I got it, I didn't pay attention to it. So. All I have is best advice, and there's two things. One was eat your vegetables, which I've told that story on the blog site before, and it was from a guy named Rick Damani, who's now one of the principal designers at Beck Architecture Group here in Dallas, and he's the one that said, 
it was like the worst thing anyone ever told me, but it was seminal in like me getting yeah. my act together. That yeah. was when he said, hey, when you're doing something you want to do, everybody wants you on their team. You're amazing. But if you don't want to do it, you're an anchor, right? <laughs> you're a what? <laughs> I'm an anchor. I'm okay. an anchor. It's like, it's really obvious. People know when I didn't want to do something. Yeah, you're a drag. I was like, I don't want that. I, I mean, that was painful for me to hear. And I was in the act of quitting when we had this conversation. Not in a bad way. I went in and I gave my notice and, and he was a very nice guy. In fact, he was one of the letter writers when I got my fellow award. You know, you have to get people to write letters of recommendation. He wrote one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he gave me the, you got to eat your vegetables. And it was the idea on how important it is to go about doing your business correctly, regardless of what that business may be. Whether or not you enjoy it or not. That's right. People shouldn't know the difference between something you want to do. They shouldn't be able to tell from the end product if it's something you wanted to do or didn't want to do. Yeah. That was great advice. It is solid. And then the next one was do what you say you're going to do when you said you were going to do it. I've also talked about that on site, and that's a really big deal too. So rather than getting into it, because I think it's kind of self-explanatory, I'll put a link to those posts because they go into far greater detail than we have time to get into here. But So no bad advice. Those are my top two best advice ever. Do you have any, or do you want me to just take my two? <laughs> You're like, what he said. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I'm trying to think of advice that I've gotten versus advice that I would give someone. <laughs> well, it could be advice you give someone, and you could just say you got it from your dad, because I'm sure, or your mom. Yeah. Someone planted that seed in your head. Maybe. And I don't know that it was advice, but maybe it was an example of of how to behave or how to act from my father about, don't get bent out of shape about stuff. Don't lose your temper. Because it never really helps the situation. Sure. I think sometimes that, that gets lost. I mean, nothing will turn me off faster on a job site than some contractor yelling at me about how I messed something up. You want to solve a problem, but you're going to start by yelling at me about how dumb I am. Yeah, that's definitely not a good way to solve a problem. I don't think any resolution ever comes from somebody berating someone else. Yeah, I agree. So that's all the questions we have time for in today's episode. So if we didn't read yours and evidence would suggest that we did not read all the questions that we got. Don't worry. I think we'll do another Ask the Show episode without having to wait a year to record it. So please feel free to send in your questions. I do keep them. I have a running list. I just add it and we'll get to it. And particularly if they're interesting. You can also send in any ideas you have for hypotheticals. Did you know that, Andrew? No, I didn't know that was an option. Yeah. I'm going to send some into the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time to record today's hypothetical question. And in keeping with the spirit and theme of today's episode, a listener sent this one in. So today's question. Oh, all right. All right. Courtesy of Cullen D. Smith is this. If you could have your dream home, but there was a murder in it, would you live there? So it's a scary question. Maybe. You know, I have a wrinkle, too, to throw in there, but I'm not going to tell you what it is until it's inconvenient for you. It's actually kind of awesome since it's Halloween, almost, and we're recording this episode. Yeah. It's Halloween in two days, so. And actually, I would say, I think that Cullen D. Smith is an ex-employee of mine. Thanks for listening to the show. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say ex. Former. Former. He worked for me when he was a student. Yeah. Thanks for the hypothetical, Cullen. That's right. But for me, this is an easy one. Yeah. I don't care. I'll live in it. Somebody died in, in the house that I'm in. I mean, it doesn't phase me. Okay, okay. As long as the murderer is in jail or dead or something, right? What if it's not? They don't want to murder me. I'm not worried about it. 
Okay, so here's a wrinkle right out of the gate for you. Okay, go. If it's your dream house, that kind of suggests that you designed it. So if someone's been murdered in it, it might be someone that you know. No, my dream house doesn't mean that I designed it. It could. It could suggest that for a lot of architects. Yeah, but it could suggest not. Maybe my dream house is the glass house by Philip Johnson. But even if it was one that I designed, A, that means it's going to be awesome. And B, I don't care if somebody got murdered in it. You'd think there'd be some bad memories or something like, don't go down that room because that's where, you know. I'm going to get a good deal on it. <laughs> Unless, oh, no, it's like your aunt. Aunt Betty was brutally murdered in the guest bedroom. But we've changed the sheets, so it's okay. We washed the room or whatever we did. We hosed everything out. It still doesn't bother me. I'm fine with it. Yeah. As I said, this one's pretty easy for me. I'm, I don't know that I hang on to that kind of stuff or would care. I'm just going to keep throwing more wrinkles. I know you're going to say. That's fine. You're like, no, okay, I won't do that. Okay. What if it wasn't like just a regular murder, but it was like a famous murder? Actually, that might make me wanted more. <laughs> really? So you have like people Maybe. creeping outside your house because they want to see famous murder house? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I'm fine with it. It's all kind of done. I know. You're a cold <laughs> I'm killing it, man. I'm killing it. I know. No, I'm not. I just... Well, look, I, how about this? The only way that this might be a deal is if I was in the house when the murder happened the first place. Maybe then I might not want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I was going to say... That's ridiculous. I was going to say, yeah, I would... If someone was murdered in a house and... I like the house, and I kind of go, well, you know, I don't know, the murderer's dead or whatever. Yeah, I'm not right. sure that that would phase me. Done. Yeah, me neither. However, I can with absolute certainty say that if I was in the house when the murder happened, <laughs> I probably wouldn't want to stay in the house. Yeah. Again, that gets close. That's the one probably possibility that would give me hesitation. Possibly. Okay. I can't say whether I would or not. I, that one's in maybe. Let's say one of your teaching buddies owns your dream house. Uh-huh. You're over there having a couple beers, watching Animal House or something. Home invasion. <laughs> yeah, okay. Home invasion. Sure. <laughs> You're both tied to dining room chairs. He's killed in front of you as you watch. Yeah. In his will, he- This is getting dark. <laughs> in his will, he knows that you always love the house. So you get the house as a result of him being brutally murdered as you watched. Yeah, I don't know about that. I that seems a little- you, I don't know. That's, <laughs> that seems a little rough. That should be a no. This shouldn't even be a, well, mm, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, maybe, maybe not. I, it's hard to say. You're like, mm, I'm not sure. Was there a lot of blood? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty close to a no, or maybe that would be a no. <laughs> I'm trying to think. And maybe it's so. Maybe that's it's so. Maybe far. that's a no that could be a yes. How about that? That's that starts as a no instead of starting as a yes. I would not. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't want that house. <laughs> I thought for sure there's got to be some way, right? Because unless you're the type of person. Who believes in specters and ghosts and ghosts all that and kind stuff. of stuff? Yeah, right, for sure. Unless you're that person, it's a non-issue. Like, who cares? Yeah, exactly. If you don't believe in evil spirits, and it doesn't phase you. 
So the only way that that would be a no is you have to have some type of emotional, like, I just don't, it's bad memories. I just don't like thinking about it. And if I'm in that house, yeah. that's what I'm thinking about. Which that's what that gets to. Again, I, that's the yeah, but in your that's the scenario where it's a no. In your scenario, least. I had to tie you and one of your good friends up, and you had to watch <laughs> them be murdered. Yeah, that's how far we had to go. All right, so here it is. You're at my house. We're recording a podcast episode. We get busted in. They kill you in front of me. Fine, I won't buy the house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> according to every other hypothetical, I would dodge the attack and then i know you would you would not be killed i would end up getting killed it would ricochet and you would still have the house they would <laughs> they would try to shoot me i would dodge it would ricochet and hit you exactly yeah something like that. that's how yeah. our typical they would come at me with a knife and as they lunge to stab me or stab you they would slip and fall sideways and stab me in the eye yes and i'm dead yes <laughs> and then in guilt they would kill themselves this is turned. This has gotten really dark. <laughs> I know. Okay. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the Halloween closeness, but yeah, it just really sort of took a turn. Took a turn. It's all this Halloween talk. With that, I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call it a wrap. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks for the conversation and, and that's right morbidity there. We're just moving on from that. So, thank you for being with us today for episode 37. Ask the show. If you like today's episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app and subscribe so that you can get fresh new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please leave us some feedback, and if you would, leave us a five-star fill-in-the-blank rating. <laughs> Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this episode. Finally, if you weren't aware, there is a blooper reel at the end of each episode. You're missing out if you didn't listen for it, so thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. It seems I mean, like other the, than oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry, no, no go, go ahead. ahead. It seems like uh, <laughs> <laughs> you go. All right. Each one of these is one foot, and this is how I want it to be. Is that what they sound like when they come to you? <laughs> I always want to say bastard at the end. <laughs> that's not. It's that's in. There's no. I, <laughs> I know. I know. It doesn't matter. A non-nutrient. Uh, what is it from? Christmas vacation. It's like a non-nutrient varnish that seals in the flavor and keeps out the moisture. <laughs> yeah, that's what I. That's what it is. Yeah, that's kind of a dirty thing. Is it? I didn't know that. So, <laughs> so you got about two and a half months, depending on when you listen to this episode. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so say your line again. <laughs>